0: We're going to be talking about living by grace in the last days, uh, out of First Peter. But I will—I uh, I think I do have a little bit of a unique situation in my family because I have a uh, an eight-year-old son, and putting together a sermon when you have an eight-year-old son means that he wants to help out with the slides. And when he helps out with the slides and finds the annotation feature, this is what happens. It, if you can't read that, it says "living in the last days" scratched out. And Isaac is great. So there you go. That's a little hello from my eight-year-old son um, who has a high respect for himself. <laughs> We're going to look at 1 Peter 4, starting at verse 3, reading to verse 11. So we'll, it'll be on the screen. You can turn there. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, For the time that is past They might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter is talking to his readers about how they should be living in the last days. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter, and it's been like a guidebook for the early Christians and for us. As we live in a world that isn't aligned with God's values, it's not concerned with the same direction that that God is concerned with. So how do we live in that kind of culture? How do we live there? And right in the middle of this passage, in verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things Is at hand. What does that mean? The end of all things is is at hand. It's right here. Peter and the people he was originally writing this to were in a time that was after the birth of Christ, after the death of Christ and the resurrection and his ascension into heaven. But it was before the return of Christ. And that's a period of time the, the Bible refers to as the last days. And that's the same period of time that we're living in right now. We're living in the last days. God has fulfilled much of his plan to redeem man. There's still some coming. That's the end of all things. And it is at hand. It could be here any day. We don't know if today is our last day or not. What is it like to live in a place where you don't know if today is your last day. And that's what, what Peter is talking to us about. Have you ever lived in a place, lived in a time, that was the last day or the last days of something? My first job coming out of university, uh, I'm a programmer, as, as Ron mentioned. I'm a computer programmer. So I, I went to school, did my four years, did a co-op, and then had my, got my first job and really enjoyed it i was doing well i had i did worked about 5 years at this job but eventually our company was bought by another company down in the states and one morning we received an email saying today is going to be a hard day many of you are going to lose your jobs and i'd never been in any sort of situation like this before never lost a job uh, never been acquired by another company or been in a company that had that situation so this was completely new it it shocked me. And what what happened is they would send us each a message at a certain time at, over our instant messaging application. And we'd get a little ding saying, please come to meeting room 104 or whatever it was. And they'd hand us a red folder or a folder of another color. I never actually saw that folder because I got the red folder, which means today is your last day. So... That was the scenario that happened. They went around the office and were sitting there in our office thinking, okay, waiting for this message to come to find out our fate. Is today going to be our last day or not? Are we going to have a few more days at this place? And it's interesting, the psychology of what you're thinking about when you're in that place. When you're waiting to find out, when you know today is the last day. You're not thinking at all about the things that you were thinking about yesterday. Yesterday was, how am I going to get this done on time? How am I going to meet my deadlines? How, the, how am I going to fix these bugs? All of those sorts of general life programming questions. Oh, not everyone's a programmer? Anyway, that's what I'm thinking about as a programmer. As soon as you know you're losing your job, it completely switches your, your line of thinking. Now you're thinking about, how am I going to feed my family? Am I still hireable? How, what am I going to do tomorrow? Now, by the grace of God, I lost my job that day, but found one in a few months. And it's it's been a fantastic placement. And I'm, I'm so happy God really has taken care of me there. But it's interesting in how we deal with that thinking of in the last days. And that's the that's the mentality of what Peter is looking at here. That's what he's talking about. How do we live in the last days? And And he says, live by the grace of God. In the last days, live in the grace of God. It's the grace that enables you to stand firm when others are making fun of you. It's the grace that God pours into you when you commune with him and call out to him in prayer. And it's the grace that he gives in all sorts of different gifts so that you can love the body of Christ with supernatural love and without grumbling. So we're going to look into these each in turn. How does God give us grace in the last days? First, God gives us grace to defy expectations. Peter says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They're living in a world that has a different set of values, a different set of guidelines than how, as Christians, we're called to live. So how do we live when we are confronted with that tension? And there is a tension when we're, when we're living in a way that the world does not expect us to be living. Sometimes, God's ideal for us also overlaps with the world's definition of what a good life looks like that's a really nice place to be when you're in that intersection it's a it's a comfortable place you know, if we looked if we were to look at those these two circles and the red one being the good worldly life this is what the world thinks as a good thing this is how you live the good, good the good life or the live life well and then there's the the christian life there is some overlap and when you're in that intersection it's comfortable and Peter talks about that in a few chapters back in chapter 2:15 he says for this is the will of god that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So in that scenario we're doing good we're doing god's will and the world sees and they're silenced by it they're not they're not laughing at us they're not they think it's a good thing. But now we're in a scenario where the world is maligning us because of how we're living we're we're in the part that doesn't intersect in these two circles and that there's tension that's that's challenging there's an expectation that the world has on us of how we should live what's right what's wrong and when we're not doing it that way there's tension and how do you how do we how do we respond to that kind of expectation there's a number of different ways of encountering these expectations. Um, a number of years ago I was, at, I was at work and everyone, it was a time when there was this TV show going on and everyone was watching this TV show and there was a lot of content in this particular show that probably would have found its definition in those previous verses we read. Um, so I had decided to stay away from this particular show And every week that people would come in, they'd be talking about the show. It was so interesting, and I felt like I was that guy who didn't watch the the TV show. And like, it seems like such a small thing, but I really wanted to, you know, to fit in. And it was my tendency to want to um, to meet their expectations. And that's one of the reactions that we can have when we come into this sort of scenario. We can give in to expectations and, and want to follow along with what the world's expectations is, are. Now, by the grace of God, I didn't even have a TV subscriptions, so I wasn't able to watch the show, so God saved me from that scenario. But that is one way we can respond. Or, alternatively, we can respond in anger or in, in judgment and feeling like, feeling like we need to bring justice to the situation. People are maligning us and making fun of us. We need to give them that justice. Like I was talking about, I find it difficult to respond to those kind of outer expectations. And I recently read this book called The Four Tendencies. And uh, in it, the author Gretchen Rubin talks about four different ways that we can respond to expectations. She talks about inner and outer expectations. So the upholder tends to meet inner expectations and outer expectations. Inner expectations are things I want to do. Maybe I want to lose weight. So I'm going to do that because I want to do it. Outer expectations are things that you want of me. You want me to have that report done for you on Friday? Sure, I'll get it done. That's the upholder. Then there's the questioner. The questioner doesn't care as much about what other people want of them, the outer expectations. They care more about their inner expectations. So if they believe it to be true and that it should be done, they'll get it done. Then there's the rebel. The rebel doesn't care what anyone thinks. They don't care what... they don't. If there's any expectation put on them at all, they resist it. So you'll know a rebel because if you ask them to do something, they'll do the opposite, even if they actually maybe wanted to do that. Um, and the obliger is the largest category. The obliger is the category I fall into, uh, which tries to meet outer expectations, but tends to resist inner expectations. So I'm in a book club. Um, if there's a book that we're reading in three or four weeks, I'll get it done. It'll be read. I'll know what we're talking about. Um, I have no problem meeting those kind of expectations. But if there's an inner expectation, I should lose some weight. That's a little bit more challenging for me. And I should lose some weight. And I tried. And I lasted about two or three weeks. So that's that's the challenge that we're the obliger will, will run into. Inner expectations are more difficult. I think Peter here is addressing the different types of responses that our personalities can have to the situation. So the upholder and the obliger, the people that might agree with me on outer expectations or, or respond the same way, he says to them, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So he's, he's telling the people that have this tendency to need an outer expectation, here's my expectation of you. Yes, the world doesn't agree with you. The world doesn't see things the same way as you and they have their set of expectations. But here's my expectation of you. The time that has passed has suffices for doing what you've done before. It's time to stop. My expectation is holiness. It's a perfect life. That's the expectation that God puts on his people. And as an obliger and possibly as upholders, that's that's a good thing. It's an outer expectation that we want to rise up to meet. But of course, it's an impossible expectation. Perfection is impossible. So Peter continues, and he says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, I think this verse is talking about Christians who have already died. It says being judged in the flesh. And that's that's how we're judged in the flesh, through through death. But it says, through the gospel, they live in the spirit. And this is how we fulfill the expectation of perfection that God has put on his people. We live it through the gospel. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see the mistakes we've made. He sees the perfect life of Jesus. Because that's the gospel. The gospel is that we are broken people. We're sinful people. We haven't met the expectation of God. But Jesus came. He died for us. He rose. And he gives us a new life in him. And now when Jesus, when God sees us, he sees the perfect life of Jesus. And so we perfectly meet that expectation. Now there's some of us here that are probably in the category with me and want to meet outer expectations, but there's others that might not care as much. They might be on the other side of the coin where they care very little about what other people think of them. And there's still a risk here. The risk may be that in a situation where people are making fun of you or reviling you or maligning you for what you are living, the life that you're living, you're gonna wanna bring judgment to that situation. It doesn't feel good when someone's making fun of you for the choices that you've made. So how are you going to deal with it? Are you going to bring your own judgment and try to make something nasty happen to that person? If you have children, you know that children have a very strong sense of judgment. And even if you've interacted with children, I have four of them, so I'm very keenly aware of this. And one of the things you'll notice is that if there's a bowl of chips... Out on the, out on the table, but before the meal starts, and they're not allowed to have one. If one of the kids sneaks a chip, everybody has to have a chip. Right? He got a chip, I need one too. And that's the, you know, the justice of children. Or if I ask the kids to clean up the basement, which is usually messy, to clean up, cleaning up all their toys, and one of the kids is slacking off, all the other kids are going to be dealing their justice to that child pretty dramatically, and it usually involves a lot of screaming and shouting. Interestingly enough, if dad steps in and provides his own judgment, things change a little bit. And that judgment may be very simple. I could be standing there giving everyone a check mark who's currently cleaning up the basement. Emma? Yes? Isaac? Yeah? Jeremiah? Sorry, Jeremiah. Silas? Yeah? That's enough for them to step back and let dad be the judge. Right? Right? They don't need to provide their own judgment into the situation. And you know, this is what Peter's talking about here. We have a perfect judge as our father. God is the perfect judge. And he will bring judgment. And he will bring just judgment. He says in verse 5, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So even if it looks like your friends and your co-workers are getting away with a life that you're not allowed to live, and you, you know, feel like, why are they getting away with this? God will bring them judgment. And so we can rest in that judgment. We can rest knowing that we don't have to bring it. So what is your tendency Is your tendency to follow along with the world's expectations? Defy them. That time is past. You don't have to live that way. The expectation from our father is perfection. But perfection in the gospel. In the power of Christ. Or is your tendency to deal your own justice? Remember that God our father is the perfect judge. So God gives us grace in the last days. To defy expectations. Um, but he also gives us grace through prayer. And Peter says, verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's it's interesting. That phrase is, is really an interesting tying of two different ideas. The end of all things is tied very tightly to for the sake of your prayers. Why the tie between the end of all things and the sake of your prayers? And I think it's because the end of all things, the last days that we're living in, needs prayer. We can't make it without prayer. There's so many challenges that we have in these days that if we don't have prayer, we're not going to make it. There's temptations, worldly expectations like we were talking about, to, to want to be like the people we're living with that don't follow the same guidelines that god has set out for us there's relational stress anyone who has ever been in on a road trip knows that when you're not at home there can be a lot of tension peter is talking to these the people his readers and he says he calls them exiles they're not in their homeland we're not in our homeland our homeland is in heaven so, it's not comfortable here. What is it like living in a place that's not your homeland? Things can get tense. It can, there could be relational stress. There can also be challenges to our faith. The world has a different logic than we do. The world has its value system based on human autonomy. And we have our value system based on the glory of God. And when when you have two different starting points, you get to very different conclusions about many things, the beginning of life, the end of life, sexuality. All of those things, the world has come to different conclusions, and there's going to be very strong challenges to our faith in these days. So we need prayer. We have desperate need of prayer. But Peter doesn't just stop at saying, pray. He says, pray, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So we want to pray in a way that's self-controlled and sober-minded. What does that mean? The verb for self-controlled means to be of sound mind, to think clearly and rightly. And sober-minded means to be calm and collected in your thinking. So I think Peter here is saying we need clear thinking and a hard dose of reality to influence our prayers. We need to be thinking clearly about the situations that we're in, clearly about how we're praying in a way that is is in reality of what's actually going on. Muddy thinking, on the other hand, can be very detrimental to our prayers and also just to life in general. I was talking earlier about how I deal with expectations and wanting to please the people that I'm interacting with and I'm I'm dealing with. And uh, a few years ago, I was working at my job. Things were going very well. I'm working as a programmer. And because things are going well, I had the opportunity to start leading a programming team. So there was five or six people. And of course, if you start leading a team, now you have a whole new set of expectations. You have deadlines to worry about. You need to make sure everyone on your team is focused and doing the right work. So that happened. Then I had the opportunity to Lead another team called a, a career group team. And this is a, a team that's worried about or helping people at my company focus on their careers and bring them down the right path. So now here's another set of expectations. So now I have three different sets of expectations. I have my normal programming work. I have my team lead work. I have my career mentoring group that I'm responsible for. And as an obliger, I had to worry about all of those different expectations and pleasing all of these different people and it just got into this huge big ball of mud in my head and felt completely overwhelmed. And I don't know if you've ever felt completely overwhelmed, but it's it's really difficult to move forward in that scenario. Maybe a little bit like this picture of me when I found out I was having my fourth child. That's also completely overwhelming. I Being overwhelmed is not a great place to be, and it's not a great place for clear thinking. So, I still struggle with this. This is definitely one of my bigger challenges. But I have found that when I'm in that place, one of the best things I can do is just start journaling a prayer. I pull out my notebook, I pull out a pen, and just write out everything that I'm feeling. You know, all, in this case, all of, the, all of the stresses I was feeling for each of those groups write it out, and just bring it all to God. And there's something about the clarity of writing words down, putting words to those emotions and that that ball of mud that's in my gut, in my mind, that brings clarity to the situation. And I think that's what Peter is calling us to here. He's calling us to pray with clear thinking with the reality in mind and doing the work that we need to do to get to the root of a situation and to pray reality into it. And I think that's what we can we can do as we are looking to find the grace of God in the last days. We can dig into the root of some of the, the issues that we're dealing with. So if we look at what Peter's telling us about prayer, I think he's saying, number one, Pray. We can't make it through the last days without prayer. This is how God has chosen to give us his grace. So so pray. But more than just praying, pray with clarity and intentionality. Pray pray with clear thinking. Do the work that needs to be done to find out the reality of a situation when you pray into it. Maybe that means journaling your prayers like I was. Maybe it means researching an issue and finding out what, what is actually going on and praying to the truth of it. Maybe it means going to a prayer summit. Our prayer summits are great for outlining the reality of situations and, and giving us the, the means that we need to be able to pray into the truth of a situation. So God gives us grace by enabling us to defy expectations... He gives us grace through prayer. And thirdly, he gives us grace to love. Peter says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter's saying one of the ways that God gives us his grace is by loving one another. And he goes on to say that love comes in a number of different ways. God gives us his grace as gifts. Verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So the way that we love one another is by the gift of grace that God has given us. This is not deserved, it's undeserved favor, like we were talking about earlier. But this is an enabling gift of grace that allows us to love. And loving isn't easy. That's why he says, when he's talking about hospitality, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why do you think he brought up grumbling with hospitality? Hospitality can be difficult. Especially if it's on a Sunday afternoon and you're planning on taking a nap. Giving up a nap when you have four children is, is a deep, deep sacrifice. But this is what God is calling us to. It's a challenge. It's difficult. That's why we can't do it on our own. We need the strength that God provides. So he gives us grace. What kind of grace does he give us? What kind of gifts? He gives us gifts of serving by the strength that God supplies. He gives us grace of speaking as one who speaks oracles of God. Have you ever spoken an oracle before? Peter is saying we can speak the words of God to each other to give each other the grace and the strength that we need for that time. When you go to your cell group and you share what God has been speaking to you, you're sharing the oracles of God. The strength that God is giving your group is coming through the words that you're speaking. So of course that means if you're not sharing those words, the grace of the gift of grace that God has given you stopped with you. And who wants to be in that place where the grace that God intended for someone stops with you? So, so, this is a very unique situation, a very neat way in that God has designed this grace giving system so that we are, it forces us to be a body. It's kind of like this diagram where God is giving grace to each of these people, but if they don't share it between each other, that grace is going to stop with them. It needs to be shared with the entire body. So, God has given each of you. A gift of grace. What are you going to do with it? It might be a gift of speaking in your cell group on a Sunday morning. A gift of encouragement. It might be a gift of serving. It might be giving somebody a meal when they just had a child or going through a hard time. There's many different ways that we can give that grace. It might be inviting someone into your home. I said, you know, giving up a nap is very difficult for me uh, on a Sunday afternoon. That's true. And it, I think it's true for many people that might be in the same period of life as I am with, you know, lots of ch- children. And, um, and I've noticed that there are, uh, like, our church body is really really good at doing this. Greg and Krista, for instance, have invited us over on multiple accounts. And I know they're in the same season of life that we are. It's not its not easy. You have to do it. You have to be intentional. You have to make it happen. You have to put it in the calendar. And it it doesn't just happen naturally. So this requires being intentional, making the effort, giving some sacrifice. But this is how God's grace is going to flow through you into his body. Another way that we can give love and life to each other through this grace is just by encouraging people. I had uh, Tony and Heather Grande were our cell group leaders for a number of years, and I was going through a rough period. I was feeling just a little bit depressed and not sure what I wanted to do with life, and it was challenging. And I'll never forget, I came up to the front for prayer on a Sunday morning, and Tony and probably Heather, I, I don't exactly remember, but I just remember them coming right up beside me and praying for me and and just feeling like I was walking beside someone or someone was holding my hand as I was walking through this was the most strengthening experience for me in that period of time. And it it wasn't a huge deal, right? It was coming up to me and praying for me. That's all it was. But we have that opportunity... Many times. You know, in a few minutes, we'll be opening this area up for prayer. And maybe some of us are going through a hard time. Maybe one another one of us can step beside them and pray for them. That That is a great way for the body to uplift lift each other. I will admit, I was a little bit nervous about this sermon. And so, last night, uh, I came in and Ken and Peter were praying for me as we were just in preparation for this, this morning. And just, you know, coming in and spending time with them and having them pray for me was a huge boost of confidence. and like it's, It just gave me the, the focus and the, the, the ability to see what God was doing and to see how I fit into that. And it, that's how we build each other up. That's how we can help each other. Jenny's parents, Reinhardt and Darcy, some of you know them. They live in Romania right now, and they're helping the people in Romania. And they were particularly good at this as well. Every Christmas Eve when they were here, they would invite whoever didn't have a place to go into their home. And I was there, I think, one or two times just to to share in that feeling of family. And, And all they did was invite people into their home. They were showing that hospitality. No grumbling. Sure, like, you're giving up your Christmas Eve. That would be nice to spend with the family. But they opened it up to whoever. And now they're doing the same thing in Romania. They've opened up the Rasa Family Center to whoever needs it. And they have a number of women and children that are in need of rescuing. Really. And they're staying with them. And they're providing safety to them. And that's how we can build up the body. That's how we can give each other the strength that God provides in the last days. So we're living in the last days. The end is at hand. Let's keep our perspective in a way that remembers that we're not here just for the day-to-day. We're here with a purpose. We're here because God has put us here for his glory, to bring his glory to the nation's. So how do we do that? We do that by living in the grace that God provides. We need that grace. We're not going to be effective without it. So if we want to be effective, how do we do that? We stand strong to the expectations of the world, through the grace of the gospel. We get grace through prayer, and love, uplift each other and ourselves through prayer. And we show love, the love of God to each other through the strength that God provides Let's continue to do that.